trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, it's a Tuesday, and that means it's time for our weekly conversation with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, how are you today? I'm good. I'm trying to spray some ether down the carburetor to see if I can kickstart to life this morning, but let's see what we can do. Okay. Well, there there is no shortage of uh, good hot-button topics to hit on. I wanted to get your reaction to uh, some of the, the uproar over Tucker Carlson going to Russia and apparently he has interviewed Vladimir Putin. Some people on the on the right and the left here in America are simply losing their lunch over this. Why is that? Well, it's because a journalist now has to have an ideology. And so uh, for a journalist to have the affrontery to go interview a controversial political leader apparently means that the journalist somehow approves of that political leader uh, and should shun him, which is interesting because if you go back in time, uh, back in the 30s, uh, before World War II, a famous journalist by the name of William L. Shirer, uh, who wrote The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, uh, spent a lot of time in Berlin, and he interviewed uh, Hitler, he interviewed Goebbels, and a lot of the other leading Nazis. Did that make him a Nazi? Of course not. He was a journalist. He was going to where the news is, and that's what Tucker is doing. He's interviewing a prominent world figure um, who is at the center of a, a, a big stage, and you'd think people would be interested in that. Instead, these people are interested in what Tucker's politics are because that has to define the conversation nowadays. Yeah, it's it's very curious. Uh, you know, over the years, I have developed this habit of going to the source whenever possible. And part of part of my uh, reason for this is because um, I happen to be friends with Ammon Bundy, among other people. Mm-hmm. I've seen how the media treats him. I've seen how everything he does or says is filtered through, you know, their ideological filters. So it was easier to just, you know, go to the guy and, and get the story straight from him. Now, I'm I'm going to suggest that that's, that's appropriate, even if you're dealing with the leader of a nation, uh, better to, to go to the source and let the chips fall where they may than, than pretend, like, look away, citizen. You don't even look upon him. He may take on different forms or something. But to your point, I think, is very apt, and I think that that's part of the hysteria. I think they're concerned um, that Tucker might actually interview the man honestly, and they might, and the public might actually get to hear what Putin has to say, as opposed to what the establishment people, the neocons on the left, have to say about Putin. That's got to be it. That's the only answer that makes any sense to me. Yeah, it's it's very telling to to watch the freak out and and for them to suggest things. Bill Crystal suggested, well, you know, Tucker Carlson shouldn't even be allowed to return to the United States because he went and and interviewed Putin. Very interesting. Well, it, sure, it's of a piece with everything else that's going on in this country, which is that everything, everything now is ideological. Everything is woke. And it woke does not just apply to the left. It applies equally to the right. You have to be woke, for example, with regard to what's going on in Kiev and Israel over Alice. And if you deviate from that, then somehow you're a bad person. You, you know, you take issue with the policies of the Israeli government. And I say that with specificity. 
And somehow that makes you anti-Semitic, somebody who doesn't like Jews, because you criticize the actions of the Israeli government. It's quite a, an astounding thing. Well, and, and here we are with, uh, you know, now the Congress is trying to set forth a spending bill. Oh, look at this. Uh, they're throwing a few more billion uh, the direction of Kiev, and they're, uh, they're yeah. throwing a few more billion the direction of Israel, and eh, we'll throw a little bit at the border. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, who do these people represent again? You know, how is it that the interests of these foreign countries somehow take primacy over the interests of America uh, and Americans? And, and there's no no shortage of problems in this country. We've literally got uh, vast homeless camps now of not just uh, the refugees as their style, but also of American citizens popping up in every major city in this country. But there's $60 billion available for Kiev. Yeah. I like how Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, put it. Um, mm-hmm. he's, he's pretty direct. He says this so-called border bill isn't a debate on policy. He says, don't let that be your frame. He says, something else is going on here. And this phrase really hit me. He says, I'm not sure what's happening, but it feels more like being in the middle of a war and finding out my government isn't on my side. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And, you know, I've engaged in a little bit of tweeting back and forth with people on X, which is, of course, just Twitter rebranded, um, about this whole business of uh, the Republicans uh, being held in thrall by the uh, the war party wing of the of the party, and I point out that the Republican Party has its origins in aggression and war. The party of Lincoln, uh, which waged a war of aggression against the South, that was just trying to go its own way in peace. Uh, so it's really par for the course, isn't it? This is what you would expect of a party uh, that believed in the dictatorial authority of a centralized government, and you will do what we say, or we'll bomb you. It's so simple. <laughs> I mean, why why don't, right, why don't exactly. more people do it this way? What's the problem here? You know, we won't beat you up as long as you as long as you obey. Gal, it really is a protection racket. By the way, I have to give you uh, high marks for your uh, "No More Aftermarket Stereos" article. Um, my, my, oh, thank you. My son has a, a 96 Ford Taurus, and he's been complaining, you know, the stereo doesn't work. Maybe we need to put something else in there. And I'm thinking, no, that's a great idea. We used to do that all the time. But yep. tell me more about uh, this development that, uh, you know, maybe maybe no more aftermarket stereo for, for those of us who want to swap one out. Yeah, well, you've noticed that pretty much every new car, I think literally every new car now, comes with one of these LCD touchscreens that's popping typically out of the dashboard like a Pop-Tart. Oh, yeah. And these things are the integrated control interface for everything, not just the stereo, but often for other secondary things such as the heated seats or even the AC and the heat. GPS, whatever apps the car comes with, all of that goes through this touchscreen. So in order to change the stereo, you've got to change the touchscreen. The problem is you can't realistically do that. There aren't aftermarket touchscreens because all of this is proprietary. If you buy a Toyota, uh, you know, it uses Toyota-specific software to control the various accessories. And so the aftermarket can't come up with something that will do everything that that touchscreen does in addition to the stereo. So you're kind of locked out of it. So now you're stuck with whatever the car came with, which is fine if you can afford to buy the high-end stereo when you buy the car. But what about the person who can't? And what about, you know, 9, 10, 12, 15 years from now when that car is an old car and maybe your teenage kid is the one who has it. Maybe he wants to put in an updated stereo. Well, you can't. I was able to easily put a stereo into my O2 truck because it's a discrete unit. It's just the stereo head unit and you can remove it and there are universal plugs in there that are designed to work with the aftermarket stuff. And you literally just pop it in there. It took me half hour, 45 minutes to replace the stereo. And now I've got a good modern stereo in my 22-year-old truck. 
Yeah, it really seems like uh, the the newer cars, not to not discounting all the bells and whistles, you know, and it's great to have all of the features, but it also seems like they're we're, we're a lot less personalized than than we once were. Yeah, it's expensive and it's one size fits all expensive. Um, I just got finished doing a review of the 24 Chevy Colorado, which is you know, nominally a mid-sized truck, uh, and it starts at about $30,000. And, of course, it comes with two touchscreens, one in lieu of a gauge cluster in front of the driver and the other for the infotainment system. And, you know, none of this is free. And it's worse than just that. Uh, you're stuck with it. You, there's no modularity anymore. Um, I could, if I wanted to, for example take the engine out of my Trans Am, and I could put practically any engine in it that I wanted to, and provided I could physically make it bolt up, it would work because it doesn't need to connect to the rest of the car. Now, you can't even replace, let alone swap out, the headlights in a lot of new cars unless you hook up the thing to a proprietary computer at the dealer in order that the, the car recognizes the part. Power windows, for example, they're controlled by things called body control units, which are essentially small computers. And all this stuff is very specific to your particular car. So gone are the days when you could go to the salvage yard and find a part that would you know, probably fit your vehicle. Maybe it was from one that was a few years older than yours, not the same trim. But if it bolted up, it would work. Those days are over. Wow. Yeah, I mean, more and more, I guess the more and more you and I talk, the more I think, you know what, I'm okay with my older car. I'm going to keep it as long as I possibly can just because I, I still want some semblance of, of control. And it seems like that's, that's being uh, mm-hmm. mandated out of existence as far as the new cars that we can buy. Yeah, it's really interesting. Never before, I think, in the history of the car business, and it's more than 100 years old now, uh, has it been true that the old is preferable to the new. I mean, it used to be that unless you were kind of a curmudgeon and you just preferred uh, the styling of something older, generally speaking, most people... Uh, wanted a new vehicle because the new vehicle was better in a number of objective ways. That's no longer true. They're just more expensive and more elaborate and more technological. Wow. Well, I'm, again, you know, you and I tend to, to put a lot of value on our uh, our autonomy and our self-determination. And I think uh, for people who are serious about it, these are the kind of things we need to be thinking about. Hey, when we come back. Well, you know, it's not just this. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I know, we, I know we're on the bumper here. Yeah, we're, we're coming up fast on our break again, talking with Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos. Um, I, I also really appreciated your article on libertarian policing and, uh, mm-hmm. and thought maybe we could touch on that a little bit as, as an alternative to the state answering every single yeah. one of our prayers and wishes. Yeah. All right, we'll continue our conversation with Eric Peters in just a few moments. If you haven't been to his website... I provide a handy link in today's show notes. These are the show notes for February 6th, 2024. Check it out. We'll be back to continue our conversation with Eric Peters right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. We're talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. All right, Eric, we, we had to go to break just as, as you were finishing up a, a thought there, mm-hmm. and I, I wanted to give you a chance to, to complete that thought. Sure. You know, in addition to the, the control factor, there's a related facet, which is just this, this serial and ever-increasing parenting that you find in the new vehicles that are constantly trying to correct the way that you drive. 
even to the extent of whether you looked left or looked right for too long, according to what the uh, drowsy driver monitor indicated. And it gets annoying. Most people just want to be in their car and drive and be left alone and maybe listen to the radio or talk to their passengers and not uh, have to constantly have their knuckles wrapped by cars. And that's what all these new cars are doing. And it makes keeping what you got extremely appealing. No, it, it's, yeah. We shall see who has the strongest will in, in this matter. I'm, I'm pretty committed, <laughs> right, though. Right. So I wanted to talk with you about your article on libertarian policing. And this is one of the, this is one of the things I hear often from people. Well, you libertarians, you don't want any, any government at all. And, you know, how would you solve disputes? How would you solve problems? And you give some really good examples of, of what it looks like to solve a problem without inviting the violence or the implied violence of the state into the situation. Yep. Well, let's start by addressing what I think is the, uh, the, the thing that often goes unremarked and unchallenged, which is this false premise that uh, relying on police, on government uh, police, that is, somehow is going to eliminate problems. Obviously, it doesn't. We still have problems. We just have now the additional problem of the government being involved in our problems. And that type of involvement is multi-tiered. In the first place, you have to pay for the problem. You get to pay through the taxes that you pay for the, the, the government police, and then you get to pay if you have to deal with them again. So it's a double whammy. You get to pay for them, and then you get to pay for them being the vehicle for enforcing uh, things against you, like seatbelt laws, for example. I think it's preferable, if, if at all possible, for us to deal with our problems ourselves. We have so much more control over it, and in a lot of ways, it's just more civilized. Uh, I gave an example of dealing with a neighbor whose kid kept playing the radio really loudly um, uh, for several days at a stretch. And I, rather than call the police, I responded by just firing up my very loud diesel tractor and parking it in close proximity to their house and turning the headlights on pointed in their direction. And that shut the stereo off real quickly. And that was the end of that. And I didn't have to call any armed government workers to come and handle the problem for me. Um, would it solve every problem? Of course not. But then neither do the police, you know, and you don't have right. these, these secondary compounding problems when we deal with our problems ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, we, we all have a choice. And and I, I prefer to take the uh, let's not get the state involved choice unless it's unless it's absolutely, you know, unavoidable. Uh, case in point, yep. uh, my, my neighbor has a couple of dogs that uh, like to come over and visit my yard. Now, they're well-behaved. They're not molesting my chickens. My dogs do want to, to fight with them. It's a kind of a territorial thing. But rather than than going and, you know, getting angry at my neighbor or, um, you know, heaven forbid, calling in, you know, a sheriff's deputy or something, hey, would you tell them to keep their dogs open? Yep. I have made it a point to go out and become friends with those dogs. Yep. To where when they do come, yep. come into my yard, I can just simply go out there. They'll come right to me, and I just lead them right out to the gate, and there you go. Go on home, boys. That's it. Yep. Much easier yep. than, than getting the state involved. And nobody had to pay for that either. Right. And plus, it, it doesn't engender, um, you know, ill will. Because I really like my neighbor. I think they're, he sure. and his family are wonderful people. I don't want to drive a wedge between them and, well, your dogs are coming over to my yard, which can well, sure. be a problem, but, but I choose nobody not to escalate to have, it into one. Nobody likes to have the cops sick on them because, you know, cops means government people with guns and badges and authority. You know, whatever your issue with your neighbor, uh, ultimately, at the end of the day, they don't have the power of the state behind them. And you may even hate their guts, but there's only so much they can do to you without the power of the state behind them. But when you involve the government, now you've got not just that individual government worker, you've got the entire apparatus of the government behind them. And that's kind of a forbidding thing. 
Do you remember uh, William Norman Grigg? Oh, I loved Will Grigg. Yep. Yeah, he helped formulate form my thoughts on this matter, uh, and he, he had a saying that I liked, which was uh, that there's no there's no incident that's uh, that's so bad that calling a cop won't make it worse. And he was right <laughs> about that. And and yes, we understand there are good cops out there. There are good people, but you know, as as a general rule, you know, when when you invite the law to to a situation, you're inviting someone with a gun to come sit down at the table. Exactly. And there's another uh, phrase that I like, which is the cops are essentially crime historians. And what do I mean by that? Well, when seconds count, a cop is usually minutes away, at least. So what will happen is that the thing is going to happen, and then the cop will show up and write a report after the fact. And that's fine, but it doesn't prevent the crime, does it? It just means that maybe you've got some kind of documentation to file with your insurance company that somebody broke into your house. Yep. Now, I, I want to shift gears here. we got about four minutes left here, but I wanted to, mm-hmm. to talk about your article about why do millennials lean left? I just saw a recent yeah. poll which really shows that, um, yeah, the, the especially Generation Z tends to, tends to be much, much more progressive. Um, tell me your thoughts about this. Well, the obvious answer is that's all they know. You know, it's kind of like if, if, you have, if you grew up after the TSA, um, became a thing, you have never experienced what it was like to just go into an airport at the last minute uh, and run up to the gate and catch your flight. You know, you never had that experience. So for you, uh, it's totally normal and routine to have to stand in line for an hour and allow a government worker to put his hands on your body and rifle through your stuff uh, before you're allowed to board an airplane. Well, the left has grown up in an entirely different, I mean, the left, the millennials and the Gen Zs have grown up in an entirely different environment than uh, Gen X people like you and I and older people grew up in. And so there's that. And there's also this odd thing that, you know, they, they, uh, they're, they're, they're blaming capitalism for what socialism has done to them. And what do I mean by that? Well, a good example of it is the requirement that the left impose uh, that everybody has to buy health insurance, Obamacare. When I was a young guy, I didn't have to buy health insurance because why would I? You know, I was a young, healthy guy, single. I didn't have kids. I didn't need it. So what I did need, though, was money. So rather than buy health insurance I didn't need, I put money aside and saved it. And that, along with some other savings I was able to accrue, helped me to buy my first house. Kids today, on the other hand, they're mulcted in so many different ways. They have to buy health insurance. Cars are unaffordable. Insurance is unaffordable. Uh, so they are living at home until they're 40 sometimes, and their prospects of having a car or having a house are increasingly dim, and they blame capitalism for it. Unreal. Yeah, so I'm going to ask you to put on your prognosticator cap here, Eric. Uh, um, so the, the upcoming election, is, mm-hmm. is this going to be the, the year that uh, Gen Z carries you know, the progressive uh, movement forward yeah. or, or no? You know, trying to figure this one out is like trying to read a vacuum gauge on an engine with two dead cylinders. You know how the needle will, will just kind of go back and forth and back and forth. Who knows? Who knows if we're even going to have an election the way things are going? Um, I don't know. Nobody knows. It's it's going to be very interesting to see what ends up occurring over the next few weeks, let alone the next few months. I think, isn't the Supreme Court about to rule on those 14th Amendment challenges to the orange man? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Was it uh, Biden v or Missouri v. Biden? Yeah. So we'll see. You know, if they if the, if the court decrees that it's acceptable, that it's legal uh, to, to keep the orange man off the ballot, that he's ineligible for office, 
uh, we might see something very big happening very soon before the election. Well, there's there's no shortage of possibilities of things that can and likely will go wrong. Um, we've got about a minute left here. Um, how do we keep our sanity? How do we keep our footing in a very unstable world, Eric? Well, the way I try to do it is to get my hands on things that I have some control over. Um, and I think that all of us have that control. We just have to be willing to exercise it more. Uh, you know, your, your, your work to the extent that you can and certainly your preparedness. And that's something that we do have a great deal of control over, thinking about what might go wrong in the future and how to shore up things um, in the event that, that, that things do go bad and, and you have, have the means for being able to, to deal with it. And just doing productive things that will make you feel better rather than worse and not marinating in all the bad stuff, because that's what they want. They want you to feel hopeless, despondent, and passive. Yep. Look for light more than heat when it comes to the information you're using to to see what's happening in the world. Eric Peters, thank you so much for spending time with us this week. Oh, I appreciate it, Brian. Thank you for having me. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. And a quick shout-out to my sponsors, including LifesavingFood.com, TMZPNation.com, the Iron Sight Brewing Company, that's Iron Sight, S-I-G-H-T, B-C.com, as well as QuiltAndSew.com. All right, so, uh, I didn't... Look, I don't watch the Grammys, although I did pick up a little bit of chatter um, over the last few days because, you know, the Grammys took place over the weekend. But apparently, the performance of Fast Car, you remember the song from Tracy Chapman from, what was it, 1987, 1988? She did a duet with country singer Luke Combs, who apparently uh, just, he he did a cover of this song a couple of years back. It uh, It just exploded. Huge, huge song. And, of course, this has been an opportunity for the woke to to really get bent out of shape. Um, In fact, I'm looking at an article here from Monica Showalter from American Thinker who talks about how singer-songwriter Tracy Chapman has already made her feelings known about uh, the wokester whining regarding a white country music singer who licensed her fast car song and got a hit out of it. And yeah, there was, well, look at that white privilege. He's just, you know, taking advantage of this this woman who never got the recognition she deserved. Uh, hang on a sec. Tracy Chapman actually, she got plenty of well-deserved recognition when the song came out. But what was cool was she actually came out of 20 years of retirement, sang a duet with Luke Combs, and it was just powerful. I mean, I, look, I, I'm not trying to get all kumbaya on you here, but uh, talk about two very different worlds. I believe when, when Tracy released that song, you know, it came out on the top 40 charts, but it was more of a folk song almost. And yet it was, I, I remember, I was a young man and I remember that song coming out and going, dang, that, that song hits hard. And Luke Combs, to his credit, sang the song exactly as, as it was written, even though it talks about being a checkout girl at the supermarket and whatnot. Um, just, a, just a fantastic song. It translated very well to the country genre. And I guess they just had the audience absolutely, you know, in their hands. 
In fact, here's a tweet from from a, a person who says, look, award shows are tedious and crass, but the smile on Tracy Chapman's face when the auditorium goes nuts for her before she takes everyone to school with no lip sync, no auto-tune, no in-ear monitors, that's a pretty sweet moment to capture live. Monica Showalter says it was extraordinary. Look at how strong her performance is without all the bells and whistles of today's pop stars. Look at how respectful... Luke Combs is of Tracy Chapman's artistry. And note that both singers sang the song well in their own styles with an expertly done arrangement that made both artists shine. No wonder that audience was on its feet. That was American music at its very best. And the backdrop of why she came out to sing that song after 20 years of silence seems to have been to let everybody know that she had put her stamp of approval on Combs using her song to license and sing his own version of it, which was a top country hit last year. Chapman herself reportedly earned north of $500,000 in the royalties for it based on that licensing, thank you very much, and her own 1988 song enjoyed a startling revival in the charts. But of course, this wasn't without controversy because that's what wokesters do. Chapman did her best to shut it down. Wokesters had screamed, Combs is appropriating her music and claimed that her song never would have become a number one country hit without a white guy singing it. So Chapman put out this statement last July at the height of the controversy. A very rare email from her is apparently she's very shy and it should have killed off the matter immediately, but it didn't. This is what she said. I never expected to find myself on the country charts. But I'm honored to be there. I'm happy for Luke and his success and grateful that new fans have found and embraced Fast Car. So to underline her message for the slow learners out there, she did her performance with Combs to make sure they got the message. That's powerful. And with that performance, Monica Showalter says, Tracy Chapman put that woke whining to rest. She came and sang with Combs, and once again, she was number one in her own song category. Actually, in all categories. Because she's brimming with merit and talent and bri- and brilliance, and she never insults her audience. Yeah, her politics are probably progressive based on some of her song topics and lyrics. But they're always personal. And she never throws her politics in people's faces. Taylor Swift, you might want to <laughs> take a note here. She's first and foremost an artist, so her her music appeals to 100% of her potential audience, not 50% as the loud wokester musicians like to do to themselves and shutting out half their potential buying audience by yelling about MAGA or whatever. Chapman doesn't do that. She just lets her music speak for itself as befits a true artist. And that's why she's number one. And that's why every woke Hollywood loudmouth ought to take notice. I don't really spend a lot of time on pop culture, but on this one, I'm going to make an exception. And and it really comes back to, it's a brilliant song. I thought it was a brilliant song when I heard it back in 1988. I think it's a brilliant song today. But I also admire Tracy Chapman for being a peacemaker more so than than someone who's out there trying to generate controversy. I think people could, could learn a lot from her example. Okay, that said... Let's take a moment here and talk a little bit about uh, lack of trust in mainstream media. Kurt Malberg has a great piece on intellectualtakeout.org. And I'll admit, I have felt a kind of sense of mm, smugness, maybe. Schadenfreude, I believe, is the the German term. Um, As I've watched various media outlets 
just engage in mass layoffs. And I'll grant you, most of most of that, uh, mm-hmm, you know, is is not so much a product of it's sure good to see other people suffer. It's more of a matter of, huh? So it turns out karma is exact. And I know I shouldn't feel that way. So so I'm not playing this off as yeah, and everybody should act that way too. But I'm still remembering how mainstream media absolutely acted as narrative managers and enforcers of all the COVID edicts and COVID misinformation given to us by official sources. So it's kind of good to see them uh, cut down to size in that sense. Kurt Malberg, writing for intellectualtakeout.org says, for weeks, news headlines across the country have told dismal tales of layoffs, cutbacks, strikes, and sell-offs at some of America's biggest media brands. In fact, the crisis became so dire that Axios called it a mainstream media bloodbath, reporting nearly a dozen mainstream media companies are gutting staff and scrambling to rescue their struggling businesses. After severe cutbacks in 2023, most industry observers weren't expecting such intense cutbacks this year. That's according to Axios. But an ongoing bloodbath is decimating news outlets nationwide. So what specifically did Axios report? Well, at Forbes, a three-day walkout in January failed to stop the CEO from announcing layoffs that affected some 3% of the company. Insider recently eliminated 8% of its workforce after failed union negotiations. Paramount employees were told in late January to look forward to a fresh round of layoffs, even as the company enters talks with potential buyers and merge partners. Responding to plans to cut 115 jobs, staff at the Los Angeles Times staged a multi-city walkout. Multiple top editors also resigned over the fiasco. And then, of course, you have uh, the entire staff of Sports Illustrated, who were recently told their jobs had been eliminated after the magazine failed to make a $3.75 million quarterly license payment. According to the NewYorkPost.com, that's uh, Sports Illustrated's licensee, the Arena Group may be forced to auction off the magazine and several bidders have expressed interest, including Jeff Zucker, currently CEO of International Media Investments and Minute Media, owner of Mental Floss. Then you've got BuzzFeed trying to sell two of its premier brands, Complex Networks and Tasty Lifestyle Brands. And over in the much healthier conservative media hemisphere, Breitbart senior writer John Nolte argues the mainstream media is sugarcoating the news of its own demise and that the reality is, in fact, far worse. He says the wheels are coming off all over. Again, just giving you kind of a a rundown here. CNN has fallen off a ratings cliff. LA Times is losing about $40 million a year cutting nearly a third of its staff over two recent layoffs. Washington Post slashed staff and lost nearly $100 million in 2023. BuzzFeed laid off 15% of its staff and closed BuzzFeed News entirely. Vice Media filed for bankruptcy last year. Sports Illustrated shut down. Vogue, Vanity Fair, and Condé Nast layoffs. They're coming. Jezebel is closed. So, yeah, something's afoot here. And again, it's, it's not uh, so much, oh, we should be celebrating that people are out of work and struggling and probably feeling sad. That is happening. And, and it's sad, but at the same time, there, there is a silver lining. And no, it's not uh, found in other people's suffering. The silver lining is that, that, uh, that stranglehold on the truth, or at least on the facts or the narrative. It's relaxing. That is the... Uh, 
the hand that was doing the strangling doesn't have much life to it. And this, as, as we'll come back to this article in a few moments, this opens up opportunities for alternative media, wink, wink, like you are listening to, to fill that gap. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. want to finish up this uh, Kurt Malberg article from intellectualtakeout.org about uh, the mainstream media bloodbath, as it's being called. I'm not going to shed tears for mainstream media or the people who choose to sell their souls in buyer's markets. (laughs) You only have to do it once, but uh, there are a lot of people who are very talented, no doubt about it. But they choose to use their talents to uh, engage in sophistry and to to try to make the, uh, the untrue believable. And they do it because it gives them, you know, that access to power and that sense of, oh, yes, we're part of the we're part of the elite. But it looks like uh, time is running out on their their day in the sun. Kurt Malberg says explaining the downfall of BuzzFeed in greater detail. The company went public in 2021, valued at $1.7 billion, and lost 97% of its value in the few years since. Good heavens, that's just like a little over two years. Almost three years. 97% of its value. Vice Media followed a similar trajectory. It went from being valued at $5.7 billion to being unable to pay its bills and filing Chapter 11. Now they're valued at just $350 million. So with all that said, Kurt Malberg asks, what is causing the bloodbath? Now, for its part, Axios blamed unsustainably high ad growth in the 2010s that saw publishers become addicted to the income stream, a stream that's turned to a trickle in tougher economic times. And no doubt that's part of the equation. And of course, each company has its own unique internal challenges and external headwinds. But the story is far less complicated. With increasing frequency, mainstream news outlets have been selling lies disguised as the truth. And the fact is, Americans are no longer buying it. Remember, this is the media that told us that Trump colluded with Russia to win the 2016 election and that he was likely a Russian agent. Well, that turned out to be a scam peddled by crooked FBI agents and it was eventually exposed in the Mueller investigation. Mueller investigation, rather. They told us Hunter Biden's laptop, which incriminated his father, Joe Biden, in foreign financial scandals while vice president wasn't really Hunter Biden's laptop, but an elaborate Russian disinformation plant. Slowly, quietly, years later, media outlets have finally admitted to the truth. They told us it was a conspiracy theory to claim COVID-19 leaked from the Wuhan Institute of Virology until years later, they finally conceded the virus probably did originate in that lab. They told us that Trump called Nazis very fine people, held kids in cages at the border, and used tear glass to clear to clear D.C. protesters to stage a Bible photo op. They told us that Juicy Smollett and uh, Bubba Wallace were victims of racist hate crimes and that the Nobel Prize winning drug Ivermectin was horse dewormer. They told us that January 6th was the darkest day in America's history and the 2020 Black Lives Matter riots, which killed dozens of people and did billions of dollars in damage, were mostly peaceful protests. As Kurt Malberg puts it, they told us too many lies to list and now they're going broke. 
Axios warns the news media, or rather the media business, is shrinking at the national, state, and local levels. A scary, stark new reality for thousands of journalists. But even that is fake news. Because the alternative media business is going great. The truth is finally getting out. People are turning to trusted, independent outlets like Intellectual Takeout to go beyond the sound bites, beneath the headlines, and into the stories that matter to everyday Americans. And Kurt says that is good news for all of us. I tend to agree. And I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to mention it again. The idea is you should be seeking light in whatever media you are accessing. If a story leaves you feeling dark or hopeless, if it just brings darkness into your worldview, maybe it's time to uh, adjust and find different sources. This isn't just looking for stuff that I agree with or stuff that makes me feel good, but stuff that actually adds illumination to your light or to your life, rather, instead of just upsetting you. It's the whole idea of uh, less heat, more light. Now, I do try to take that approach on here. I don't always do it successfully. Sometimes I, I complain loudly about stuff, and that just tends to generate more heat. But know this, in spite of my shortcomings, in spite of, of my failings to, to meet that high standard sometimes, my goal always is to leave you more sure of who you are and what you stand for than it is to tell you this is what you should be afraid of and this is who you should be upset at. And I do appreciate those who you know hold me to this and tell me when I start going off into the weeds. Two quick articles I want to touch on in the closing moments here with uh, the steady approach of central bank digital currencies. Smart people are giving some very serious thought as to how best to protect their wealth. And Jeff Thomas uh, tackles this question. Great article on lewrockwell.com today about from crisis to confiscation, where do I store my wealth. And he actually goes into some really great historical examples of confiscations and bubbles. And, you know, the, the danger here is, uh, he says, look, you consider yourself uh, economically diversified, maybe you own stocks and bonds, you have some cash, you have a retirement fund, maybe a bit of gold stuffed away at home. On the surface, he says, it would seem that you're covered. But the trouble is you have all of your wealth in one jurisdiction. And should that jurisdiction find itself in an economic crisis, well, all your eggs are right there in one basket. And all that diversification will be seriously at risk. In other words, if it's all there in one jurisdiction, it can be taken away. Now, he says, of course, it's human nature for us to want to keep our wealth close at hand. It feels more secure than having it miles away from us. And we tend to follow this concept, even though we're well aware that to have our wealth really close, in other words, on our person, we would be asking to have someone with a gun take it away. And although we understand this, he says, we somehow manage to convince ourselves that our own government, should they decide that they wish to get their hands on our wealth, is less of a threat to us than some thief. But if we're really being truthful with ourselves, Jeff Thomas says, governments pose a greater threat than the average thief, rather, as they can steal legally. And from here, he goes into some of the historical crises, the complications, the confiscations that have taken place. And then talks about internationalism, internationalization rather, and diversification. Now this is something that requires a little bit of effort on our part, right? You're not just going to, well, okay, fine, I'll find some foreign bank and start putting money into that. 
The bottom line is the greater the amount of wealth that you're trying to protect, the more diversified you're going to want to be. Maybe you want to hold some things in the British Virgin Islands or the Cayman Islands or the Bahamas or Switzerland or Singapore or something like that. Maybe you're looking at, uh, you know, cryptocurrency or something. But the warning that he's offering is that most of the world has gone on a massive spending spree and has, in effect, used a credit card to do so. And sometime soon, that bill will need to be paid. And the jurisdictions that are in debt will unquestionably be revealed to be insolvent. So the economic crisis, when it hits, will be sudden and devastating. Everyone in those jurisdictions will be negatively impacted. But those who've internationalized, their wealth will fare the best. And when the dust settles, they will be the ones who are in place to recover and rebuild. Not enough time to go into a lot of detail on that, but probably a good topic to be considering about what can I do to, uh, to, to hedge my bets against the idea that maybe, you know, I don't know, my own government may come after my retirement funds or something. I mean, we saw this happen just about 10, 12 years ago in Europe. What makes you think that it wouldn't happen here, right? Just needs the right crisis of emergency. One final note. This is the article of the day. A marvelous economics lesson courtesy of Art Carden from the American Institute for Economic Research. Asking the question, is it possible to create wealth without making anything? He goes through how value is uh, imputed to an object. Because there are people who believe, well, if you just take something, hammer it a few times and turn it into something else, ah, you created value. But actually, Art points out, no, the value is found in the idea, more so than just simply somebody did some work on something. He talks about how private property and voluntary exchange make resources available, how that value is created, why we make the decisions that we buy what we do. I love to share these articles that that offer economic insights because a person who is aware of how economics works, and that's just simply how, how human beings make their decisions, is going to be more farsighted than a person who just kind of wets their finger and sticks it up in the wind to see, okay, well, which way should we go to support this policy or that policy? Economics requires that you look at the, not only the intended effect, but also the unintended effects that you're likely to encounter as you're moving forward. Yeah, it takes a little bit of extra effort to get your mind around such things. And I'm the furthest thing from an economist as you're likely to encounter. But once you understand the basics, you don't look at things quite so superficially ever again. This is The Brian Hyde Show.